so when we pronounce the title for this movie, oh. you know, I've always just said Satan Tango, like it looks. He does this every time. But there's the little accent marks and stuff. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't get hung up on that. I've, I've been saying Satan Tango this whole time. Because this is uh, this is America. I'm in America, at least, and here uh, that's how we say both of those two words, Satan and Tango. And I'm always saying them together. They can put as many little accent marks over the A's as they want to. It's Satan Tango. Danish people are white. I'm not worried about it. Hello, and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast where the films may be more afraid of you. You are of them. I still wouldn't feed them, though. I am Mark Batavio. Mm, I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are joined by author and film and TV critic Charles Bromesco to tackle one of the most intimidating of all cinematic rites of passage. Bellatar's 1994 art film Satan Tango is seven hours and 20 minutes long and intended to be watched all in one sitting. And lest you think that seven hours flies by, it's also a quintessential example of slow cinema at its bleakest and most punishing. So today we are going to find out how slow can we go. Thank you. Did you like that one, Seth? Wow. That was for you. I enjoyed that. No, no. I, I love a good bit of wordplay. Should have been longer, though. That's my only thing. How slow can you go? Oh, we'll see how long we can drag this out for. <laughs> well, we should open things with, you know, just the sound of, you. let's all do a task and do the whole task. Don't don't cut any quarters. We're gonna Everybody's going to listen to us do that task. I'm going to go and I'm going to read a chapter of a book. And Mark, you're going to, uh, you, you just dropped something, you're going to sweep it up, and you're going to sweep it up. We're, Charles, we're going to do the uh, podcast equivalent of an eight-minute tracking shot. <laughs> yes. Walk down the street. Man, you feel so cool when you walk after you watch this movie. I do. I feel like, especially if you were walking into a wind, you're like, yes, I oh. live the most tragic life anyone has ever lived. That's me. Yeah. I was going to pick up my laundry, and I was just like, Nietzsche is in hell writing a book about me right now. <laughs> so cool. All right. Well, as I said, our guest today is Charles Bromesco. You may have seen his film and TV writing in The Guardian, Vulture, or the film magazine Little White Lies, along with countless other publications like Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Newsweek, AV Club, IndieWire, Pitchfork, just to name a few. He is also the author of the new book, Colors of Film, The Story of Cinema in 50 Palettes. So thank you for joining us today for a film that could not have less of a color palette. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, Lovely intro. And yeah, I think maybe subconsciously now that I am kind of on the other side of that, like I've done all the promo stuff, it's like, it's out. It is firmly out. Now maybe I'm like trying to get back to black and white cinema a little bit. Um, Although I think so, when you had asked me about what I might be interested in discussing, I chose this because I had uh, just a few weeks ago, I believe, seen the Werkmeister Harmonies for the first time, uh, which is also a film by Bellatar that he made in the year 2000. Satan Tango came out in 1994. And I guess he and his techniques were really fresh on my mind. Uh, and I also, you know, I found this to be a, a very challenging viewing experience for me personally. I have a 
not a super short attention span, but relatively short attention span. Uh, and so it, it's a lot of hours. I had to divide it up into three sittings, even though I know you're supposed to do it all in one go. But I just could not carve out nearly eight hours of my day um, to watch this. And so we've all been crushed by the modern disease. It's true. I mean, if it wasn't for the hectic hustle and bustle demands of modern life, I could just sit preferably on like a dirt floor and watch this entire movie in one go. The Instagrams, the MySpace, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the iPods, the, all that, all that. Yeah. yeah. And it was funny because when I was, I kind of was letting you know about the podcast and I believe I sent you a list of all the films that we had done in the past. Your response was basically, I, oh, I love pretty much all of these movies. Um, but the one thing I do have trouble with is uh, what you referred to as durational cinema. Yeah, for sure. That was, um, and, and yeah, that is, uh, very much what I was thinking about before coming on here is that like, I, <clears throat> I think I gravitate towards, extreme content, the kind of stuff that I think a lot of uh, your your average moviegoer finds kind of off-putting. Like I can watch animal slaughter, stuff happening to kids, things happening to eyeballs, what have you. Um, I, I was raised on horror. And so I am pretty much in near to this. But yeah, having to sit, as you describe, like, and really hold your attention for four and a half minutes while somebody leaves through the newspaper, uh, that I think requires a lot more of me than watching someone's like eyes get popped out of their skull. Uh, and so, yeah, this um, <clears throat> the technique that Bellatar is really one of like the preeminent practitioners of, uh, and that is referred to as slow cinema by some. I know that academic types and people who really love slow cinema kind of reject that because slow is a relative term, right? Slow and uh, fast these are these are all you know very subjective terms. But durational, I think, gets more to the essence of what it's trying to do here, which is about the real elapsing of time, about like seeing things happening in real time, things taking as long as they take. You're watching something like very real. You know, there's no, uh, the great feature of the cinematic medium is, is editing the ability to condense time and space. And this is a style that sort of pushes back up against that. Um, <clears throat> I think the first time I heard of Satan Tango was actually when I was in college. There was a girl in the film seminar class who was trying to make a point like this about um, things happening in real time. And she said something very insightful and she was like, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. It's just like in Satan Tango or Titanic. And I was like, of course, these two uh, very naturally pair <laughs> examples for one principle. Yeah. And I think that uh, there's definitely a difference between just talking about something that's long and the way this movie is paced because you know, there's certainly really long movies. Like the longest film that we've talked about so far on this podcast is actually Heaven's Gate, which is about four hours. Um, but it is not something that resembles this movie in the slightest, uh, where this is more about pushing every single scene to its breaking point and yeah, uh, showing yeah. things in real time, like you were saying. Uh, but I, I do want to talk real quick, just in general, about length in movies because. You know, I, I feel like on one hand you have, I don't know, if, if you look at film Twitter or something, you'll at some point see somebody complaining about, uh, you know, they'll even, they could use an example like this and say, oh, all critics like are seven hour black and white Hungarian art films. Here it is. I have, I, I've, I've seen that. That's kind of a recurring thing where it's like, that is sort of the go-to example of something that is just like too esoteric and too uh, opaque to actually enjoy Um but I'll tell you, it's like it's it's kind of like watching TV where you watch this, you get into it. It like it sucks you in all the little sagas of these people's lives. It's um, 
the, yeah, the thing is, uh, so, you know, as opposed to something like Heaven's Gate, which is really, that's a four hour story. You know, there's, uh, it, it is long because it takes a long time to tell. Whereas, uh, something like Satan Tango, which is fable-ish, I guess, uh, not fabulistic. Yeah, maybe fabulistic is, is the term, but it operates in this sort of symbolist mode where the narrative itself is kind of stark and referential, that uh, each you know character and actions are meant to stand in for larger forces. And so um, I, I think I joked while I was watching this, I was like, I could get this down to a tight two and a half hours. Um, but the story, you know, how long the movie takes to tell is less the point than the feeling of things taking a long time, uh, which sounds like a perverse thing to do to your audience. But there is a lot of productive, um, it, it, that can be really productive. You know, there's a lot to be gotten from that. It's also this exercise in adaptation, which is really interesting because it, it was a, a novel before this and it is an adaptation. And to my knowledge, from what I've read, I've not read the novel, but it's very close to the novel. Like, as far as how the action goes, uh, which is very interesting because like everybody's seen a million adaptations of books. Sure. But uh, the, the classic thing is like you can fit sometimes 500 pages into two hours. And in this, it's not as you, you would expect it to be like, well, surely it must be like a thousand pages, but it's just I think it's like 300 pages Satan Tango. Uh, yeah. Conceivably, you could read it and maybe faster than it takes to watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an exercise in literal translation, literal adaptation, where I think it's like, it's one thing to read the sentence that he uh, went, looked in the in the cupboard, went back out the door, came back in, and looked back in the cupboard again. The movie would cut that together really fast, but watching it here, it could be four or five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Like just that, that you're watching, which makes it this very strange thing. Like a sentence becomes this whole like sequence. Yeah, and and I guess one thing I want to emphasize, which is that as dry as some of these shots can be, they're very functional, they're very like quotidian. There are also, I think the way he builds frames, a lot of them can sustain being looked at for like eight minutes at a time. He makes these like really harrowingly beautiful images that you do kind of like, you, you can inhabit for a while. Uh, the thing that I kept thinking about while watching this was like drone music and how it is really just about like achieving this state and then being in that state and trying to sustain that for uh, as long as possible. And, you know, I, I was not watching this in optimal conditions. I did not see this in a theater, uh, which is, I, I feel like, definitely the way to see it. But Someday, you do, yeah. You know, you want to get in the zone. You want to get uh, in the zone where where you really feel like, you know, you're on that frequency, the same one that Bellatar is on. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying. I think uh, what I find, what I was really taken with about this movie, as opposed to, uh, I think the first one I joked about in doing this, which was um, Andy Warhol's Empire, which is just a single static shot of the Empire State Building from like dusk to dawn. I think it's like a 12-hour movie or something. Um, Thank you so much for not picking it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, even I have my limits. I have not seen it, but I um, I get the concept of it, which is that, you know, he wants you to just be like to sit. And it is extremely meditative where, you know, you're trying to get into that almost trance state of just feeling time pass you by, feeling it slip around you like a rock in a stream. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And yeah, I think uh, that is generated uh, in a much more stimulating way in this than in some slow cinema movies, which like, I, I'm weird. I'm very hit or miss with that. There are some that like, um, 
the films of Simon Lang, uh, who is a wonderful filmmaker. Um, and he makes these, you know, really elaborate images that you can, you know, scan and find new detail and, and take in for so many minutes. But there are also some people who I just, uh, I don't totally click with on that front. Who is something like that? I'll, I'll let you know when I think of one. But there are some that I just find unstimulating that I'm just like, this is a... Oh, you know what it was? Was um, I saw Saint Omer, which is a French courtroom movie, uh, which also operates with these slow cinema principles, where like we post up for like eleven minutes at a time and just stare at the stoic woman as she speaks or is spoken to. And I think with something like that, where the composition of the frame is extremely minimal, very stark, I'm almost like film is a visual medium. I just think uh, that th- there are differences between uh, expressions of these ideas, which is the toss up with this movie too sometimes and is like the push and pull of all like slow cinema because yeah it's like it is to i mean uh, an outside viewer this is very counterintuitive to how film works right it's like you're like we are supposed to be cutting the whole thing up and seeing it from all angles and seeing it in different ways and like speed being influenced and uh like that's how like we're moving at the speed of thought or something like that, but we're no longer doing that. We're like now in reality, um, which seems, uh, but, but it like, that's a good point. What you brought up is sort of, I think that is the hook to explain to someone how this movie or other slow cinema movies work, which is that it's meditative. It's uh, like anyone who has gone to yoga or, or meditated or been guided through any of that. It is that sort of, it, it and it can be like wrestling uh, at a certain point <laughs> like you're always that's that's always how it's going to be if you meditate it's always going to be you it's effortful it is effortful until it's not sort of wondering if i'm meditating right am i chill enough am i am i thinking about not thinking enough you know am i you know isolating my thoughts enough and uh that goes into this but it can create a space where yeah time goes out the door and you're no longer thinking about the fact that I'm watching this seven hour movie, I'm not checking like how long is this going to take? Like I do with, which I do that with like hour and a half movies sometimes, you know, but it's wild that one can get you in this. Yeah. You, you got to give yourself over to it. I think uh, you like, you know, you surrender to it and you let it kind of not wash over you, but you follow it where it goes. You follow its beat and its, and its rhythms. I do think it's important to acknowledge that not all slow cinema is, you know, uh, alike that's on the opposite end of the you know person on twitter who is saying why is anything in a movie that is not moving a story along whether it's a a sex scene or you know whatever the current discourse is that's going on on the kind of opposite end of that is it does seem sometimes in certain critical circles that there's a deference to very long and slow movies Uh, i know anytime like something it can premieres that's four hours plus i know it's going to be just raves uh all over the place for it. So there's, I do sometimes think this too. I saw, um, I saw the movie Godland back in February, which is good. I, uh, it's a movie, a standby and that I think um, has a lot in terms of content to recommend it. Uh, but I was also thinking that, you know, if I was a first time filmmaker, uh, which I, first thing I decided when I was a film critic is that I could never make a movie too hard. Uh, but my point being is that if I was watching this and I'm seeing this movie Godland, which is mostly like a dude walking around Iceland for two and a half hours, I'd be like, it's the um, it's the thing where you walk around a museum and you see a painting and you're like, well, I could do that. You know, of course, I'm capable of doing that. And it must be nice to 
just paint a canvas red and be hailed as a genius and all this stuff. Um, the point is that um, you didn't, you know, I think uh, people have a skepticism about this where because the skill required to make a movie like this is less demanding than say like just sort of creating the circumstances for you to be able to make a movie. That is what I find most impressive about someone who, um, the filmmaker Mariano Yanas, who made a movie called La Flor, which is in multiple parts. It's like, 12 hours. It's really, really long. It's a long film. And he shot for like the better part of 15 years across multiple continents. He, you know, had cast members and he brought them back over and over again. And I'm just like, you got someone to give you money to do all this, this extremely uncommercial project. Um, and I guess in terms of just like feats, that is probably what I consider most impressive about this. You see a slow cinema movie, you're just like, you know, it, it can't be practically that difficult to make relative to some other things but uh it's more about having the vision and having the conviction to be able to realize it on your own terms uh which i i do find really impressive i um i was lucky enough to i interviewed mariani and about the floor when it came out in the u.s and i interviewed just a few weeks ago after seeing workmaster harmony's bellatar and the really kind of clarifying thing the revelatory thing that they said um, because I guess I, I was trying to sort of work through some skepticism where I asked them, I was like, you know, you're making a movie like this to you. What is the difference? You know, you have a seven minute shot. What is the difference between that and holding that shot of someone shuffling around for five minutes or holding it for nine minutes? I mean, how do you, what is the basis for this technique? And both of them gave the exact same answer, which is that you feel it, you, you shoot it and you shoot it for as long as you feel you should. And then something inside you or something external tells you that the shot's over and you call it. And it is entirely vibes-based. And so I think people approach something like this wanting something concrete. And it is really just like you ride it. It's a wave and you ride it, baby. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, like you're saying, it, it's really all in the the eye of the beholder or maybe of the director as far as, you know, which, which person doing this particular thing you're going to connect with more than others. Because um, I do think it's fair to to kind of ask a, a movie to justify its length, no matter what that is. Uh, sure. I, another one that came to mind a lot that uh, we covered on this podcast before was Jean Dilman, which I think is the length and the repetition. It's within this tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And in that movie, the, the length and the repetition is so intrinsic to exactly what that movie is doing, which is being a, a character study that gets you onto this wavelength where you're clocking these behavioral changes. And that's, that is the way you get insight into her psychology. If you are, if you're one of the 95% of all viewers that come to movies for entertainment, the idea of making a movie about boredom seems so perverse and self-defeating, but that is what is actually happening here a lot of the time, especially with Jean Dielman as the example, which is about how stifling being at home is, how stifling domestic work is. You are trying to generate that feeling of boredom, which is something that, you know, the vast majority of movies break their backs trying to avoid. And so I think wrapping one's head around that can be difficult for someone who is not studying film, not in a formal way, but in a formally critical way. Like if you're if you're really trying to think about what is being done, uh, that that's an important one to cinch your saddle up on for sure. Yeah, and your work is cut out for you as an artist who is creating something like that, though. If you are right. like, shooting for something that is almost inherently counterintuitive for many viewers, like you're... Uh, I don't know, like, it, it's very possible to drop the ball. And I'm sure, like, I don't know, you have to be a very confident artist 
to like, go into that knowing that you're just going to upset a lot of people, kind of. People making movies like this often have to depend on grants rather than traditional financing. It's like you have mm-hmm. to prove to your country's government that you are making a creative work of some aesthetic worth. And that is where your money comes from because like, no person who's looking for a return on investment is ever going to pay for, for the amount uh, that you need, which is usually not, not all that small in uh, projects like this. No. Yeah, and they... And especially in like Jean Dilmont, that's a movie that's around three hours long. And uh, I never once found boring uh, with the way that it unfolds. Whereas uh, like another film that we that we played uh, that we covered on this podcast, Harmony Kareen's Trash Humpers, uh, takes something that was like <laughs> it's glacial. N- not to bring that into the conversation, but something that was like already kind of annoying at five minutes, and then made it pretty much unbearable at like eighty minutes. <laughs> and that movie, to me, is so much longer than uh, Jean Dilmont or this. I, I do wonder if we are the the first people in history to measure Satan Tango against uh, Trash Humpers, uh, Trash Humpers, and Jean Dilmont and everything. We're all about firsts. Yeah, proof that there is no. Uh, Real measuring stick for time. I wrote earlier this year about um, <clears throat> movies being too long. I think uh, I mentioned this, that there... I saw John Wick 4, uh, which was, you know, enjoyable. The action is very well choreographed. But this movie, which is like three hours and change or something, it's like, it's so unbelievably long. And it is just because they had a lot of scenes that they liked and didn't want to take out. You watch it and you you see that they, you know, we spent a lot of money on a lot of scenes uh, with action set pieces, and they didn't want to remove any of them because then why did they spend that money? But this is not conducive. You know, some movies do not require that long to to you know be expressed to the fullest extent. And I think that a movie does kind of have to um, prove itself for for the length it. that it has, and uh, it just doing a lot of things, just having a lot of scenes in a row, is not really it uh, to me. You really gotta either it is because you have a story that takes that long to be told or because you require that long to like get into that state that I was talking about before getting into that sort of um, trance state. Yeah. And you mentioned uh Vergmeister harmonies and for anyone who's uh, just listening, who's not familiar, Belatar is a Hungarian filmmaker and he's, his movies are all at least I've only seen uh, harmonies and the Turin horse. And now this, and those movies are all very much of a piece. Those are the big ones. It's, it's messed up because he's made uh, his earlier films from in Hungary, very difficult to see, not widely available. And he's like such an incredible guy. He's been making the rounds with the Werkmeister harmonies restoration. And like people go nuts for his appearances. He really doesn't do interviews very much. He doesn't come to America very much, but his sound bites are like, he's a really funny guy. Like he's old. He's not super old, but he's old enough. And the fact that he's been smoking, chain smoking, I pretty, pretty much from when he wakes up to when he goes to sleep his whole life has accelerated that. But he is a flinty, funny, just no bullshit kind of guy. He swears like a sailor. If you've ever read his interviews, it's really funny. He seems like the guy who would make seven hour movies in black and white. Absolutely. Well, so that's what I'm saying. It 100% comes through in the final product. And uh, as much as we've been talking about the theory of this technique, I also want to point out that uh, Satan Tango is like a movie about real stuff. It has content. It's uh, uh, just, you know, to run through it, it is, uh, takes place in this Hungarian village shortly after the dissolution of this agrarian commune. You're a professional. We're getting to the plot. Um, we, we, man, everybody. I'm sorry, I don't mean to rush into anything. But just you. like oh, The audience is thanking No, please, too. Because I was good. <laughs> I was 
I was not looking forward to ha- to having to to try to evoke exactly what happens in this. Oh, I mean, this is going to be uh, as broad as broad strokes can possibly be. This is mega broad strokes, but uh, this agrarian commune has dissolved, which is. Um, uh, Belatar is a very political filmmaker in Hungary, which was a communist country for many years. That regime fell apart and was taken over by uh, autocrats that Belatar really, really hates a lot. And so a lot of his movies, um, Berkmeister Harmonies in particular, which is about trying to attain harmony again after this period of discord, uh, and Saint and Tango were deep in that period of discord. Uh, this is before we start to look for a solution, and it is a work of like pure, uncut, uh, high-octane pessimism. And so, yeah, we see in this village that has kind of descended into senselessness and brutishness and uh, all these sort of like state-of-nature savage qualities, and they're trying to see if there's still any little scrap of humanity left in this uh, barbaric Eastern European slaughterhouse. That was very good. Very muddy. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's Satan Tango in like 30 seconds. (laughs) But then there's the cult. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the great thing is that in a seven-hour movie, there's, like, a ton of subplots in there. Like, it feels like an entire miniseries or season of TV because there's a really huge ensemble cast. There are all these, like, you know... It, it has subplots. It, it almost plays like TV uh, to the extent that, like, Twin Peaks 3 is TV. You know, not not so conventional. But the way that it thinks about narrative and plotting, I think, would make a lot of sense to, like, a a present day viewer who's raised on binge watching. Cause that's kind of what it demands of you. It's like, I'm going to tell you all this stuff and it's uh takes this long. Well, there's even title slates. There are chapters like this yeah. is like this guy's story. We watch it. It can, it can be very like long form within that chapter and it can go on for hours, but it is a so, like solidified beginning and end sort of arc that happens within those chapters which uh, in a way does help with the link, I would say, and does help smooth everything. Although there still is, um, because that's the whole thing. Bella does talk about how he would like you to watch this all in one sitting. And that is like sort of the question that the audience is posed is, especially a Netflix audience, right? Is like, well, well, why the hell wouldn't they just break it up into a miniseries? Which does strike me as like a fair... uh, critique in some ways that like i don't know i i sometimes play with that idea because i also watched it in three settings i also wonder if even if it was like its chapters were isolated as parts on criterion collection or something like that i watched them and they were released separately or like i could watch them in different orders and things like that there's an also another way but instead he specifically wants it to be almost eight hours of viewing like consistently i think just uh in terms of sensation and you know the experiential component it's probably it's got to be more potent when you do it like that you're really like you're ground down to like nothing by the end of this day yes and as much as i was yeah as much as i was sort of pulling my hair out at certain points it would be sort of at the beginning or end of my viewing experience like of the three parts but there was this always this middle section of my viewing experience, which was always like sort of I'm finally in there and I'm I don't know, the meditation worked, the hypnosis worked or something. Uh, and it also depends on the part, too, which is, yeah, it's all very complicated how I feel about this movie. Yeah. There's also, I think, to an extent, uh, someone like Bellatar in his mind, he's a filmmaker. He's like, I don't make TV. You know, TV is 
TV is its own thing. I think there are some filmmakers who have a complex about uh, being a TV director versus being a maker of films. And I don't think he's necessarily spoken about that. And he doesn't take himself too seriously. But I also think that he's like, why the fuck would I make something for TV? I don't want it to be watched on TV. He wants it to be watched in a, in a cinema. Especially back in 1994, before yeah, absolutely. Know, the prestige TV model had really taken off. And I mean, you can only imagine what Hungarian TV must have been like, like a fucking wasteland. Right. <laughs> yeah, a miniseries would have been lost to time as far as they were concerned. It wouldn't have been yeah. worth it. Yeah. But I can speak from the front lines from this because I did watch this in one continuous sitting. He did it. Just Respect. a few bathroom breaks. Uh, I left like three and some change hours in. Uh, yeah, I would not, I I would not recommend it. starting at 9 p.m. Oh my um, God. That was my So you fault. finished this at like 3.40 a.m. or something? Yeah, it was around it was around 4, 4.30 with the with the bathroom breaks. I'm so sorry that like, I kind of brought this into all of our lives. <laughs> Mark, is Mark, Mark is nocturnal. He is a bat. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it actually, well, no, it is. Some of us do have a podcast co-hosts who decided they want to come over and start watching it at 9 PM and then leave two and a half hours in. Uh, well, but, you know, an interesting life. betrayal. Yeah. That's yeah. also very Satan tango kind of losing, <laughs> uh, losing resolve and, uh, yeah. Failure. Yeah. It was just me in the movie by the end. Just failure, utter failure in the face of life. But it certainly does. And I wasn't totally sure I was going to make it through, but I did push through. And, uh, I gotta say, I mean, it really does seem like at least splitting it into two viewings would probably be ideal. That would certainly still feel like a lot of time. Just in terms of like what I'm internalizing, at least. I think uh, if I give myself a little time to refresh, I'm, I'm going to get more from it. Yes, because it is a lot and it does start to become numbing as it goes. It And by the time, you know, it's hour four, five, six, seven it is it is a lot of slow cinema together and i think that's a valid argument you can make about this movie is what you know does in the end if you watch it that way at least does it start to actually dull the impact rather <laughs> right. than immerse you if anything my eyes are tired yeah like yeah. regardless of how amazing whatever is happening on the screen it's like after four hours like i'm tired of looking at the same thing i'm tired of staying in the same place there's it's like i think no matter how you know, actively entertaining. I find something at that length. At that amount of time, I will start to break down. I wrote something um, years ago about watching Joe Dante's The Movie Orgy, which is, I think, six hours. Uh, and it's all just, it's compilations of uh, archival footage from like TV. It's a, it's collage. It's, it's basically just a clip collage. And I really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's hysterical. It's so good and so cool. But I did start to be like, what planet am I on? Uh, who am I? How old am I? What's going on? <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's inevitable regardless of uh, what I'm seeing, I feel like, at, at somewhere around the five-hour mark. There's a give and take with, I don't know, more experimental art, right? Or a more challenging art that on one level, I'm indulging it in order to, like, because there's promise and I feel like I'm getting something out of it. On another level, like, the key word is I'm indulging this and this is a stranger in my house who's sort of performing for me. And I'm just at a certain point, it becomes more and more like of a, of a strange relationship that you have with an artist that like it, it's easy to forget in like snappy, fast pop uh, 
kind of art or something like that. But he, in, in more difficult things, like the fact that you are having an interfacing sort of conversation with someone you don't know it becomes this sort of like, I'm like giving you a lot here and you have, you have to like trust them. And it's, and it's weird. It's hard to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's absolutely, um, the, the main f- function of this amount of time, I think, and this is what we see from TV is, um, familiarity. You, you can build real familiarity with the characters in the film, but I think in this one, you build that familiarity with Bilatar himself. Like you start to see his sensibility come through in the things he finds funny and the things he finds alarming in the images that he gravitates towards. As you mentioned, like, yeah, there's multiple shots of people walking toward you on the street or away from you on the street. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, it's that over time, this is the same thing I felt like when I saw the, uh, the Beatles documentary that everyone was watching last year, maybe the year before, but just like you hang out with people long enough, you start to take a shine to them. I don't know what it is. I, uh, I watch, uh, Love Island. Are you familiar with this television program? Yes. Terrific show by the way it's kind of the the satan tango of um british people dating um but no oh, i I, uh, I started watching this last summer i came back from a trip and my fiance was watching and she was like you have to this is who we are now um and i and i started watching it to be a good sport and i developed really strong investments in these people in such a short amount of time and you spend hours and hours with them it's it's an hour every night television show and these people who I know for a fact that if I met them in the world in a real way, because they're like Jersey Shore people, you know, they, they are all shiny and taut and, and beautiful and stupid. And I know if I met them, we would not have anything in common, but I would like lay down my life for these people just from, it's, it's the familiarity that is bred over, over time. It's, uh, this, is, this is people who like sports. I'm not a big sports person, but I hear that people who like sports, this is what they like about it too. They're like, I can watch this you know, first baseman uh, do uh, baseball for, for, you know, 10 years, 15 Now years that's and, slow cinema. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this does have a lot more story than I was expecting going in because I, I really didn't know anything about it. And it it is it is divided into 12 chapters, which I guess is supposed to actually be reflecting a waltz in that six steps forward and six steps back is something, the structure, which makes sense because some of the part a lot of the parts do circle back to show things that already happened from a different perspective and that's exactly how the book is is uh divided up apparently as well so there is a kind of a structure there that's purposeful although again like we were saying uh, and at least according to bellatar there's roughly 150 shots in the film some of which get around like the eight to ten minute range and um I don't know. I, I don't know what the average number of shots is for a normal movie, but it's probably probably higher than that, even in a normal ninety minute movie. Yeah, you're you're gonna get through 150 shots in about like I don't know five minutes of five minutes of footage or something. Oh my right. god, a, a trailer on, on YouTube. Scenes. Oh my god. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's 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 a whole saga. That's the thing. It's uh, and, and I find that people. If, if it seems like there is a disproportionate critical favor towards stuff like this, it's only because the rewards are really strong. Is that if you really do put in the time and the kind of intellectual bandwidth to commit to this and like sink into it and like get everything that you can get from it, there's usually a lot to be gotten. Uh, and it's, you know, you, you do something for a long time, you work at something, it's gratifying. 
Uh, <clears throat> and I think if you spend your life sitting in rooms watching movies, it's not often that you have to uh, exert yourself and work a lot towards something. I've, I've lived my life in such a way that I avoid labor uh, in, in whenever possible. And I think when you do something like that, there's a real sense of accomplishment. And so, yeah, I think maybe that could have some sort of a impact. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics of the content here then, because um, you did a pretty good job of setting up what the whole milieu is here. And there is a, a centerpiece event that happens in the movie, which is a, at least I see it as the centerpiece of the film, which is a long sequence of a little girl who is mistreated and uh, ends up torturing and poisoning her cat before eventually poisoning herself. Spoiler alert, this is like three hours into the movie. <laughs> see, I see the bar scene where they're dancing around and they get drunk and dance. And I agree that I, I also kind of thought of that as the centerpiece. I see but, uh, the no, centerpiece. these are both hugely significant scenes. Uh, right. But the, the, the most horrifying thing, the most unwatchable thing, absolutely, is what Mark is talking about. Yeah, let's talk about that because we, um, you know, we watched a movie called Necromantic that has a a little bunny rabbit be killed and butchered on screen. And uh, I know Seth and I watched that together and both kind of looked away from the screen when that was happening. They're at a farm, Mm. but it sucks. But that does have, it kind of has the apocalypse now excuse of, you know, oh, they were already going to slaughter the animal. That's, um, there's almost a documentary aspect to it and it's over very quickly. You know, it, it, I mean, at least the rabbit is killed, you know, very quickly. Here, the cat is not actually killed, but... This goes on for a very long time, and however uh, Bellatar wants to say that he has, you know, made sure that there was a veterinarian on set and that the cat was okay, this animal is clearly in real distress for long periods of time. Those ears are back. Slamming it on the ground. The girl is, like, wrestling with it, and, like, it's horrifying. You think it's going to break. She ties it into a, uh, like, with a net and hangs it, and it clearly is is terrified by this. At one point, she's kind of smashing, like shoving its face into a bowl of milk over and over. And somehow they get the cat after that to kind of like lay down and droop into the bowl like it just ate poison. And uh, I got to say this, it might have been the hardest sequence for me to watch of anything that we've talked about on this podcast. Maybe part of it is I'm a huge cat lover. Watched it with my cats, actually, and they didn't care. They felt but, no sympathy towards that cat whatsoever. Yeah, but uh, I found it very, very upsetting. I can't ever imagine myself watching that again. And in a way, it almost took me out of the movie because I was so worried for the real cat. Yes. That yeah. It, it was taking me outside of it a bit. And I om- I would put that as a criticism, but I'd be interested to hear how you guys process this. I mean, this is my second time watching the movie, so I scrubbed the hell out of it. And I had at least, like... I, I like I haven't seen this in a theater setting, which once again would be rubber hitting the road in one way or the other for me, which either like me just having like a, an LSD trip of a time possibly <laughs> that you could believe of like watching this in one sitting, how it's supposed to be watched. Or I hit the cat scene and I don't have like the Internet at my disposal to immediately like try and research something, which I did the first time I saw it. I like pause it. I was like, What's happening? What is this? What I need to I'm not going to finish this if like I know that there's a cat that's been killed for this movie or harmed for this movie, uh, which it was not necessarily harmed. But I do err on the side of like I still like even with the knowledge 
I could see myself. The cat like, might beg to differ. Maybe getting out at a certain point. I do think it is an awful thing that happened in this movie that yeah. an animal needed to be subjected to this because we have this whole art thing that we do. Um, that, I mean, that scene, I think, um, with stuff like that, maybe almost as a defensive measure on my own part, I always try to think about it analytically. I'm like, now, why would he be doing this? Why would he want us to see this? And I... Um, I guess I thought about it in almost like semiotic terms. And I'm just like, what are we looking at and what does it signify? Uh, we see this girl who this cat is very precious to her and she poisons and kills it. And we see again, you know, you go back to Bellatar's political philosophies and it's all about how the people of Hungary are destroying their own country, that people who purport to care about this nation are nonetheless doing antithetical things, self-defeating things. Uh, you also see this a lot in movies from Romania. Uh, in Eastern Europe, every movie is about how terrible living in that country is. That is a pretty, it's a helpful rule of thumb that uh, every Romanian movie in some way is about the, the unlivable indignities of existing in that country. Uh, there's a great movie that came out a couple of years ago called Intragalde, uh, which is about, in Transylvania and Romania, some people's car gets stuck and uh, the people who, you know, they're trying to get it out and fix it, they just keep making things worse and worse for themselves. And I guess I started to sort of create some distance between the cat death scene in the Satan Tango, this movie, and myself by thinking of it in those same terms that this is about, you know, uh, commentary. As, as much as this is a really intimate scene and the emotional content is so strong, um, I think thinking about its commentary maybe helps me near myself a little bit. I think psychologically it, it is a very powerful scene because she's specifically is taking out her own helplessness on this cat. She starts berating it the way clearly she has been berated. She's, you know, she yells at it for messing its pants and she comes out and says, I can do anything to you that I want. And right, um, right. that kind of uh, repeating these cycles of abuse. Yes. Which, like This is on the tiniest possible scale. And then we also see that at like national scales as well. Yeah, and we should also say this sequence starts out with her, um, is it her brother or another neighborhood boy who tell, gets her to bury her money to, and tells her that a money tree will grow? Oh, yeah, the money tree. Yeah. <laughs> and inevitably, after she kills the cat and everything, she goes back and finds that, no, he just dug up the money and, and took her her money. It's a micro version of the actual plot, yeah. Yeah, I think thematically, it, it's it's very much... In that sense, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone to the film. Uh, but like you say, if it is followed right after with the the dancing, drunken dancing to an accordion player and waltzing, which go, uh, goes on for absolutely forever. <laughs> absolutely and then it's forever. And then they're done, and then they start again, and it goes on for fucking ever. But, you know, again, obviously that's very intentional, and I could see yeah. that being considered yeah. the centerpiece. Yes. I think uh, there are very few um, forms of pleasure that Bellatar really believes in, but he likes, you know, uh, music, I guess. That's the thing. In Verkmeister Harmonies, uh, the, you see the loss of pleasure in the world is, is represented by the closing of this circus slash traveling carnival, whatever you call it. And he does, you know, believe in enjoying life in, you know, very specific and weirdly primeval and very old-timey ways. Yeah, you notice that this movie kind of seems to exist outside of time, that the form of entertainment they like is like really weirdly early 20th century, but the surroundings look later 20th century. And it's just, um, I think that helps with that sort of 
fable quality. Yeah, it's like outside of time. But yeah, the fact that he lets that dance scene just run for so long is because I was like, this is him, you know, it's the one time that we really see like a flicker of pleasure from him in this movie that is really like anhedonic in just how totally deprived of any, uh, you know, warmth it is. I would say... I go back and forth about the bar scene because I loved it the first time I saw it. But this time it really did feel like it suffered from some of the issues that I started to have in this second viewing of this movie with the minimalism and his approach to minimalism. Like when it is stretched to such a length and such a repetitious sort of feel uh, that my problem is that I am watching a whole movement, a whole task being done, a whole night in like one shot or something. And I'm just, it just reaches a certain point where they feel like, yeah, like not like, like it was done in order to take the reality out of it. Like the reality for me, like goes out of it and they become like automatons or something. There's like, Almost like he's telling them not to improvise at a certain point because there is just so much nothing happening and so much just like repetitious nature, like these strange stilted scenes that like, like he just needs to fill them with more and more silence and more and more repetition rather than how something that's too much in the other direction is like uh, Cassavetes where he's just like, Everybody in the room is like, hey, what if I picked up this thing and threw it threw it over at you? And, is, and what if I had this monologue out of nowhere and stuff? There's just like constant, constant, constant. This seems the other direction where he's, I don't know. I don't think it's, I, I don't know why, but it feels like there's just this, I don't know. There's not enough ideas happening at a certain point or they're like not encouraged like, after, like to do much or something because they feel, again, like they're just like, people who are just sitting there and I'm looking at them or people that are doing one motion and I'm just watching them do the one motion. And after a while, I'm wondering, like, I've gone through the phase where I've thought this is sort of transcendental. And now I'm wondering why it's still happening or something. He's a, he's, he's very hands-on with actors. Um, lately, he, after um, Turn Horace announced that he was going to retire from filmmaking, which in a sense he has, he just really mounts kind of museum pieces and installations um <clears throat> a lot of which are about him kind of directing choreography in large groups of people and so i think yeah based on um what you were saying he definitely keeps people you know reined in i think he he spontaneity is not so much part of his uh approach i think when you see people working in long takes just letting the camera run it's usually because they're like oh you know we'll see what happens and then Maybe you'll get something interesting and unexpected by just kind of letting the camera run. That's not really his style. He, when he runs something, he wants to know exactly what he's going to see, how it's going to work, how it's going to move. Yeah. He seems like self editing almost to the point where he's like thrown the page away or something, where it's like <laughs> now, now there's like nothing. Like you got rid of a bunch of the shit that is maybe manipulative or in other movies or unrealistic in other movies. But now it feels like you've gotten rid of like everything. So now what is happening kind of at a certain point? Yeah. Well, and Seth, that's, that was my main conflict with this movie that I really, for me, wasn't resolved by the end, which, you know, the central question is why is this particular story 
need to be told in this way? And I can answer that question really easily with, again, going back to Jean Dioman, that it's, it's all about the routine and the repetition and the slow changes that you note in it over time and what that reveals about a character. And in this film, you know, once you're five hours in, what does it add to have another half hour long sequence of people packing their suitcases and getting ready to leave the town or a long scene of these officials who are typing a letter towards the end, way towards the end, like six hours in, and they take a break in the middle of it to eat a whole meal. Oh, least favorite scene. And then go back to typing. I could not believe the first time I saw that one. And I was just like, I have gotten five hours into this movie and now I'm just watching two guys at a typewriter. I, I, <laughs> like I we're way so past the point of immersion. After even the, after the first hour, you're you're very well immersed into this film and everything. So what exactly is he evoking? Because I'm not sure this is a movie about boredom, or if you think that the first part is the second half isn't. Yeah. Uh, it's more about them following this con man after they had to have a change of heart. So is this just? the only way Tar's interested in filming a movie because all of his films are, take this pretty much this exact same approach, but some are two and a half hours. This one happens yeah. to be seven And I'm not saying I dislike this minutes. movie at all. It is just so, like, these are questions that I'm just still kind of wrestling with, to be honest. Sure, and I'm yeah. just a little, yeah. I think um, the intended effect from him is less tedium <clears throat> than like desolation. I think uh, you really feel like existentially strung out when you were watching this like there is just you know it's it's he's not literally showing you flatland but i think spiritually it is a sort of kind of bombed out flatland where it's you were you're trying to absorb some of the misery that the people on the screen are living with um i wrote a piece in 2019 or maybe 2020 about a film called the painted bird which is a uh, adaptation of this really grisly Holocaust novel. All this horrible stuff happens to this kid. We did it on the podcast. We did it on the pod. You know what I'm we talking sure about. We sure do. Oh, <laughs> yeah, baby. We remember that one. What I wrote about that is that uh, for the director, his name is Vaclav Marul, it is not enough for him to relay this information. It is not for him. It is not enough for him to tell you these things. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to really feel that pain of like not being able to escape from bad things happening uh which again if you go to the movies to have a nice time seems like the most counterintuitive thing but um i think there is a lot of value to it that's why i argued in piece anyway because we when we are watching a movie have the ability to exercise this privilege of looking away if we see something that we find troubling or difficult to digest we can look away or we can leave and i think in making a movie like this he is trying to not so much take that privilege away from you, but make you conscious of your choice to exercise it or not exercise it. He's like, here's someone who could not just get up and walk away. And so if you do choose to do that, it's not necessarily guilt, but it is awareness that he's trying to create of the situation that we are in and it's it's um, distance from the situation that we're seeing on screen. And so I'm interested to hear what you guys think about the ambiguity in the, the second half of this because after they do all kind of leave the town and follow this kind of con man or at least i think we're supposed to assume he's a con man leading them to this communal farm yeah. and he eventually gets them to he's my favorite part right it's very it's very like a plot kind of thing and then at one point he says this he's like a, a jesus christ kind of savior figure for them being yeah. like he has this 
and which it, he immediately like lets the viewer know that this is all a con, but he has totally swindled the, the, the townsfolk into thinking that he has some sort of plan. And he's clearly like very well-spoken and he is well-spoken. He's one of the better actors in the movie. Like we just watch him do a monologue and he is one of the ones that is absolutely worth watching. I think that does like, he's got Charles Manson eyes or something. He, I, I get hypnotized by his like, little speech that even if it has holes in it, you're kind of getting like swept up. And the way that it disperses, I mean, he then disperses them basically throughout the the area with some kind of vague plan that he'll catch up with them later at a, at a certain point. And um, then instead of following up on that or what happens to them or exactly what his plan is, we just return to the town with the one guy who was left there, this doctor character. And it's just funny that after I could imagine someone if they did, you know, power through like the seven hours of this film, then getting to one of those just perfect, you know, irres- unresolved art film endings and being like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> All this and you're going to give me the go to black ending without telling me what happens. <laughs> I also wonder, I mean, what is the what is the resolved ending to that movie? I feel like after everything that's happened, there is no like there is no logical endpoint for this where I'm just like, oh, well, why didn't I get to see X or Y or Z? I don't feel as if there was anything I was missing just because I had so few expectations. I think the movie kind of sets you up to have very few expectations of it. See, I agree with that. Yeah, with the ending. And because it is just, he's a sociopath, uh, Aramius, the, the cult leader or whatever. He is totally, he just wants to con them. He enjoys conning them and he's going to continue to do this. Like, I don't I think that he's just going to have them wrapped around his finger. He's going to send them off into these other towns and then he's going to do the next part of the con and then the next part. And they're going to like more and more layers of like silly games that he's going to put them through. And that's like the real tragedy that he's putting them through. I I did like that um, aspect of this for sure. I and I actually did, too. I was being a little bit of a, a Satan's advocate there. Ah, show advocate and um because it was it did for a while it seemed like it was just going to be setting up like is all this leading to is is us just seeing this kind of you know rug pull for the characters which seemed a little simplistic so i do like how it was left open in that way and especially with the the way the ending goes which is a little bit a little bit elliptical and mysterious um it made me think that you know, when I was reading about what the book is like, that I didn't, you know, I, I would love to have read the book or to have like realized in time to have time to go through it. Cause it sounds like it's actually a pretty postmodern uh, text. And I would like to see how that unfolded on the page. It, and it almost kind of reminded me of the ending of Infinite Jest. I don't know if anybody else had, had thought anything like that, where it, it kind of has this kind of circular thing going on that seems unresolved when you hit the last page, but then when you think about it, kind of connects everything. And that was probably my favorite part of this was leaning into those aspects. Yeah, it's um, it's it's got he does this incredible thing, and I believe it's the same in Verkmeister Harmonies, where the ringing of the bell, which covers like the last ten minutes of of the movie, we get all this footage of the guy walking up to the source of the noise, finally finding the source of the noise, which is just this sort of um, mentally deficient guy kind of banging it with a hammer. Uh, You know, it's not church. It's just some dude. And 
that lingers over the credits, which is such like a haunting effect that we started to like, you get that first title card, you know, directed by Bellatar and those bells just keep ringing. Um, <clears throat> which I think it, it, the lack of resolution, you know, we don't hear the bells stop ringing until the credits, but it feels incomplete in that that is kind of where Hungary was left is that it was really, they were hung out to dry. They were taken advantage of by people who came along and they recognized a broken state and they thought they could get a lot out of it. And I think it would be hard to find a resolution when the subject of the novel and of the movie, I think, has not found that resolution itself. I think it's pretty hardcore. I like the ending, uh, especially I, I'm a big fan of, is he the doctor? What's his name? Yeah, the doctor. Yeah, yeah. The doctor who just, I, I love his initial sequence that we get with him. That's like really long and he's just getting shit faced and he, and he writes <laughs> and he spies on everyone and he writes about everyone. It's really interesting. He's kind of like debatably writing the book, Satan Tango. Right. And, uh, he goes on this whole journey but we return to him and yeah, he just starts boarding up his house in darkness, which is pretty, uh, seems pretty par for the course for Bellatar. You know, it's pretty brutal. He's going to just be in darkness and I guess just starve to death while he drinks himself uh, to doom. But uh, I just am always amazed uh, that even the most like out there, like next level experimental artists they still like I feel like everybody's got the heart on for the elliptical circular, like here we go again ending. Like they just love that. I'm just always amazed that that is like they all fall they all have Well, I mean like, it's it's not as hokey as like a horror movie that does like the end dot 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 question. Like, I think this one <laughs> at least this one earns that. It movie. just makes yeah, it just yeah, makes yeah. me think of it though. I think it earns it. It's very cool. But I'm just amazed at just like, yeah, like the same. I, they they all agree like the uh, R.L. Stein book and a Bellatar movie can shake hands there. <laughs> that like that I can't think of how to how to really end this, but it's a great way to end it. It's just the end is the beginning is the end, you know. Well, I, I will say that um, I, I know you're probably itching to get back into Tar World, but Verkmeister Harmonies does have a much more decisive ending. Uh, oh, I love Verkmeister Harmonies. That's oh, okay. my favorite yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And I don't, uh, that's, that's a decisive end. I'm just, I'm yeah. just, I just find yeah. it funny. I just find it funny. That, sure. You know. I think the thing that I ultimately respond to the most is the style. And that, that goes across all of his movies that the, you know, they always have this very stark black and white cinematography, these long and very intricately choreographed shots. And uh, I know that when uh, Gus Van Zant was doing Jerry, that he like in particular was using this his kind of style as an inspiration. So I think you could call him one of the more influential, like independent film directors of the at least the last you know thirty years. Absolutely, yeah. He's uh, he's he's very respected. He's very esteemed. Uh, he's always. He's like of that class of like elder world filmmaker who is always being feeded by like the major festivals. He's like always getting flown to Bologna or whatever to so everyone can tell him that he's a genius, which he is. Um, but he's definitely got a stature, I think, um, which is also part of the way that he conducts himself, that he is kind of an elusive person. No, he's not online. Uh, <laughs> when I, I interviewed him via Zoom and we were sitting there and he was talking and like some, you know, person just brought up and bought him a coffee and he said they bring me a coffee here it's 
pretty good, right? And then I was like, yeah, man, if people bring in you coffee, isn't life grand? Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a funny guy. Like I would love to follow him on Twitter. I uh, watched an interview with him earlier today, and uh, he seemed really cool and really great, but also like the most quintessential like art guy in an interview where oh, every yeah. it seemed like everything this guy asked, he was immediately like, oh, no. Oh, no, you missed the point. Oh, no, we weren't thinking about that. No, we never, ever thought about (laughs) that. But, like, in a very friendly way where, like, he he likes giving you shit. Like, it's not the kind of thing where he's (laughs) mad at you for asking a dumb question. He's just like, I'm just going to tell this guy what's up and heal him. I just feel like, you know, Bella, you're being a little, I think you did think about it a little bit. Yeah, I think his movies are intense for 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 I think him to become that sort of like in the way that Werner Herzog has become kind of a parody of himself. Like everybody loves Werner Herzog now. I think Bellatar's work is a little too forbidding for that. But there is like the people who get into him. He's 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 Papa Bella. He's uh he's you know he's your he's your cantankerous granddad who makes incredibly long bleak art films uh, totally totally i was thinking about uh you know like the music of swans the band swans oh yeah him oh, and yeah. michael Gera probably get yogurt like fancy yogurt <laughs> together yeah, all yeah. the time but i remember that like uh in one of their albums they brought in someone and they were just like how long can you sustain a note with your voice how long do you think you can hold like a like a like a low d and they're like i don't know and so they just made this singer is it Annie Clark? It was somebody. But they just made this person sing for like three minutes at a time. They were like, you can do longer than that. And uh, it was just sort of <laughs> pushing the limits of, uh, of what people can sustain, which I feel like that kind of physical intensity is uh, in Bellatar's film as well. Not three minutes. That's a crazy amount of time, but something along those lines. Yeah, it's funny he would be so cagey about a lot of the in, uh, intention because when I was w- watching his other movies too, I felt that as much as I I loved his, you know, how evocative his style was and how he just creates these haunted worlds. Sometimes the characters would start talking and I don't know, I found the philosophizing a, a little bit kind of too blatant or overbearing. And I think it's mostly kept to, yeah, uh, um, there's yeah, there's one scene in particular on the Turin horse that where a guy just goes on and on about things, and he does have a tendency sometimes to really foreground like the symbolism and the big you know uh, metaphors and themes, which that you know that might just depend on your particular taste about how you know well you like those things to be kind of insisted on. Um, but I did find that that was mostly kept to a minimum here because there is so little. Um, you know, going on in each individual scene as far as just the bare action of things. It's not a ton of dialogue. But it is interesting that there is narration at the end of each chapter, which is apparently parts that come directly from the book. And I know it's it's always kind of funny to hear that drop in all of a sudden, like, oh, now you want to explain and give us interior monologue, like a little bit of a taste after all of this, this minimalism. Uh, but there is this really nice little section after that, the long, long, long dancing, waltzing scene um, where he describes like a spider coming out and spinning webs over all of the sleeping people. Love it. Love all the spider stuff. Right. And how that kind of like forms these vibrations that remind him that everything is connected. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. 
But there was really no way to put that, there was no way to bring that across really without just quoting it from the text. And it just makes me wonder how, what all was going on in the book that he didn't really find a visual analog for in this movie. Yeah. Ooh, the spider thing. Yeah, that's right. I loved that. But I also was kind of like similar to the turn horse speech. I was just like, I can look at the spiders and I can like watch this movie and realize any, any movie with an ensemble, like probably has something to do with like interconnectedness. And it's like, I just like <laughs> thought again, it was a little beneath Bella to be like, and I am creating something that is about connections. And I'm like, I know, I know. Or like, I figured there was more going on than that. And I know there's more going on than that. So I don't know. Like, Well, that's all the, that's all the stuff to argue over, really. And I think it kind of is something you could apply over all of his films. So however you feel about any one of his films is probably how you'll feel to some extent about all the rest of them. I don't know if that holds the same uh, for you guys. I can kind of copy and paste my my feelings about what his strengths and things I don't respond to across all the films I've seen by him. And but they're just amplified, you know, by times three or four with this one. So uh, Verkmeister Harmonies played at the Toronto International Film Festival in the year 2000. And Bellatar was on site to, to talk about it. And this is a this is a film critic. If you go to a public screening of a Bellatar film, you will hear a film critic saying this out loud, but uh, there was a guy uh, at the Q&A right after the movie, Bellatar gets up there, the first guy, he takes the mic and he goes, where's the hope, Bella? Where's the hope? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that is the note that I would like to leave us on. Oh my God. Where's the hope? Where Where is it, Bella? (laughs) Oh man. See, my thing is that I like the Turin horse. I like Workmeister. I I also wonder though, like I was really invested when I first discovered him. I'm curious to go back. It was also the dark days of shutdown COVID, uh, which was the perfect time to get into this guy. I watched Satan Tango. I read Gravity's Rainbow. I did a bunch of things that I would never probably do big ones. outside of being shut down and not having anything to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I know that that is like a thing. I I'm, I imagine I'm still going to like those other movies. Satan Tango is still just my problems with it is just the the amount of it. I, I I think like and certain scenes that I think just don't work. But again, like there's certain scenes that don't work in a three hour Bellatar movie. But that's not it. They don't stick out as hard. And uh, yeah, they're not as arduous and grueling in the face of eight hours you know well then let's uh we at the end of each podcast we like to go around and just say if you could would you for any reason unwatch this movie and uh i think it's i think none of us are on that level based on this discussion oh Um, yeah no i I would not take that time back uh, for anything it's cool yeah and i certainly i mean I, I'm going to wear it as a badge of honor as long as I go on. Like, hey, and I watched Satan Tango and only got up to pee a couple times. You can tell this to girls at parties. Girls love hearing about Satan oh Tango. Oh, my God. They, That's they my favorite movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. What's your name? They start playing with their hair. Yeah. So. <laughs> tell me more about the themes yeah, <laughs> of Hungarian art cinema. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, you know, who else? what else I would do with that time? Probably just get some more sleep. So... Uh, I do think that just know what you're getting into as far as, you know, anybody listening out there. Yeah. 
read a little bit about it. You know, I think especially if you go in with um, national and political context, you get so much out of it. You're like, oh my god, I'm learning about you know other parts of the world, uh, which is you know one of the things that I like about watching foreign films. Which I'm glad you brought a lot of that up because I did not have that. Um, I literally, I mean, I learned all of this about a month ago when I was preparing for this chat with him. I was like, oh, look at that. This is how you understand everything he does. It's like (laughs) really, really central. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to see it. Maybe see it some other time, a long time from now with that context. Because for me. Yeah, exactly. Once you're a changed man. Yeah. Like most of the time I approach art from, I, I don't really look at those things. I'm not usually thinking about what country it is taking place in i'm always just like these are people there's more of a universal yeah, yeah. universality to everything which is true to this movie i think that's important but yeah there's that at, at other level as well well i've had a pleasure coming on this has been a this has been a, a great way to talk about this film and uh i think after you watch it you want to talk about it that's the first thing you're like oh sure i need to process this with somebody and this has been really great absolutely yeah if anything that is a big part of the taking part in this kind of art that even if you it even if it wasn't for you it's like great to go in there and give it a try and like talk about yeah if you fucking like walked out after two hours even like that's interesting to talk about too and that's legit that is this thing about this that your time is valuable and like that's why it's I don't know. There's... It's an honest response. I mean, that's a, it's honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that we could finally uh, check this one off our list. This has been on our unwatchables. Uh, oh, it has. Shortlist for a long time and exactly the kind of movie that uh, we were definitely looking to take care of. So thank you for helping lead us through this, Charles. It was great. This has been a treat. The book, everybody, you can get right now is Colors of Film, the story of cinema in 50 palettes. And uh, is there anything else that you have going on right now that you want to plug? Or I think that we'll, this episode will be up right around the same in just a couple days. So anything you want to point out? Seems like such a cool book. It's uh, I, I like it a lot. You know, I'm glad that people like it. We, um, it, for a little while, I'm, I'm very pleased to announce it was difficult to acquire because we sold out actually. They sold all the copies that they printed and people were like, why is it going to take me two months to get this? Um, but I believe later this month, the second printing is going to be out and about. So if you want to read this, you're going to be able to. And it won't take a long time. So don't worry about that. Um, yeah, I, I really like it a lot. And apart from that, just writing on a regular basis uh, for such websites as The Guardian Playlist. I'm working on a thing uh, for the website Polygon. Uh, I, I'm everywhere. You just Google Charles Malesco and and I'll pop right up. I have, a very, I have a very searchable name. Not too many other Charles Promescos out there messing up my SEO. All right. If anyone watches this movie after listening to this podcast, go ahead and DM Charles about you it. You can yell at me. I will receive that. That's fine. But <laughs> you at least know that you have at least eight hours from this moment right now. So right. You have to yeah, hear about exactly. it. <laughs> Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpitti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>